Pastor Tom Kang. He's the senior pastor of New Story Church in Los Angeles. They are a church that is just blowing up. Um, but, but I think more importantly uh, than that, uh, he is the proud husband of Erica and the super proud girl dad for Allie, Nori, and May. Um, it is such an honor to have him here. Um, when, when we first thought of a men's retreat, you think to yourself, okay, if we're going to do a men's retreat, you go out and get the best men's pastor. Um, and it's, just, it's not just me saying that. Rick Warren called Tom America's number one men's pastor. That's not a lie. That's like, that's gospel. That's true. Rick Warren said that about Tom. Um, I can't think of a better person um, to come and share with us because I think uh, more so than almost anybody else, he's shown me what it means to be a man. Tom was my, my pastor when I was a senior in college. It was such a formative time for me personally. It was post 9-11 and I was really just all over the place in terms of what am I going to do with my life. I was on track to go to law school, take my LSATs and apply and kind of all of that just turned upside down. And I, I thought, maybe I'll, I'll go to the mission field or, or do something else. Um, and my senior year in college, uh, we had a college retreat. And, you know, when you have a college retreat, you go out and you get the number one pastor that you can. Uh, Tom branded the retreat. He called it the unretreat. And what he did was he asked me to preach at the retreat. I had never preached a sermon in my life. I think I didn't eat for a whole month because I was so anxious and terrified. Um, and he just threw me in the deep end and he made me preach my first ever sermon. And I cringe thinking about it now. But honestly, I, I don't think I'd be here today if it wasn't for that. Because it really showed me, man, this is something that I can do and this is something that I really want to do. Um, Tom saw that in me. And I think more than that, I'll talk more about kind of how he's modeled um, manhood for me personally. And we'll get into a lot of that at the retreat. But for now, I just want to welcome Pastor Tom King. Oh, well, that was sweet of you, Gene. That's... Uh... Yeah, that, that was a long time ago. What, what year was that, uh, the unretreat, the winter unretreat? 2003, really? 2000? Oh, Father, forgive us. No, not what we do. It's good stuff. Hey, uh, it's really good to see you guys. Look at all these faces. I see some familiar faces, a lot of new faces to me, but uh, by the end of the weekend... Uh, Lord willing, we'll get to know each other a little bit better. This podium, I'm using this podium. I don't want you to think that this is a pretentious thing. I'd rather use a music stand, but my iPad is too heavy. We tried out two during sound rehearsal, and the, the thing kept on sinking, so it's okay. That plus my, my Bible here, so I'm going to actually move this a little bit over here too, okay? All right, uh, let's pray, and we'll get this started. Father God, thank you so much for Gene, for Aaron, for Exilic Church, and what you are doing in this place, Lord. Uh, super excited. Just uh, a fan from afar uh, on the West Coast, Lord, and uh, it is a true privilege to be here, Lord. I pray that your spirit uh, would have its way 
I claimed the words of the Apostle Paul that my message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with the demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that our faith might not rest on man's wisdom, but on God's power. In Jesus' name, all God's men said, Amen. The second century master teacher was on his way home after doing his usual ministry, waxing eloquent all over the place. And, uh, you know, he got lost in the woods, actually. He was lost his way uh, in this unfamiliar territory. And as the sun was beginning to set, he was getting a little bit nervous. He's in the middle of the woods. He takes a wrong turn. And he wound up near a military outpost, unbeknownst to himself. And uh, he doesn't know it's there. He's in the middle of the woods. He thinks it's all trees. Uh, But a few moments in, he hears a voice. Who are you? What are you doing here? And he's startled. It's the middle of the forest. Who are you? What are you doing here? And Akiva is his name, this master sage, the second century master teacher. Akiva looks up into the heavens and says, how much are they paying you? The Roman guard was like, how much are they paying you, sir? The Roman guard yells down, 20 denarius. And Akiva says, I will pay you twice that amount to come home with me tonight and ask me those same two questions every morning. Who are you? What are you doing here? Gentlemen, I want to ask you that right now. Who are you? What are you doing here? Why did you make a choice of all things and of all places to come to New Brunswick, New Jersey and spend time away a weekend? Maybe for some of you, most of you, your only free time. For many of you, away from your significant loved ones, your children. Your wives, your girlfriend, your friends. Why are you here? Who are you? What are you hoping for? What do you hope to achieve? Uh, Hopefully by the end of our time together, and I realize we just have a short period of time, you'll have great answers to both of those questions. This is a men's retreat, and... um, even that word, like, it's just funny. Uh, Gene, you, you and I weren't talking about this, but, like, I just love what that, was it a contractor or a plumber that said that to you about your sons? Who said that? Oh, you, oh no, the internet guy. Yeah, I just love that. Like, it's so true, right? Like, you know, a men's retreat, biblical manhood, toxic masculinity. Like, what's the difference? Are they the same? What's going on? We live in some strange times right now. 
We live in some strange times. Weldon Hardenbrook uh, wrote a uh, a book called Missing from Action, Vanishing Manhood in America. This book is like 10 years old. So he was ahead of his time, right? And it's just like, it's a prophet, right? And uh, he, in this book, Missing from Action, Vanishing Manhood in America, identifies four false images of men. And uh, we're going to talk about that. I'm going to just lay them out for you really quick. Four false images. We're talking about this verse, right? Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men. Even that phrase, which is found in 1 Corinthians 16, ESV, act like men, I mean, that's a loaded statement today. That, that's verbatim out of your Bible. But if you said to the guy next to you in mixed company, act like a man, Whoa, whoa, all of a sudden it becomes very charged. What does he even mean? If there are women around, like what's that? And in a church setting, what? whoa, what's happening here? But I'm just reading scripture. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. And so how do we get from that to where we are today about manhood? Uh, in this book, Missing from Action, Vanishing Manhood in America, uh, Weldon, he, he, Hardenbrook, he identifies four false images of men. I want to go through them really quickly. The, the first one is a sort of a, uh, you might call him a, a macho maniac, right? Uh, this is someone uh, like, like this guy right here, The Rock, yeah. How many of you know Pastor Gene does an incredible rock imitation? Yeah, you, can you still do that with your eyes? Like, <laughs> okay. So you're lucky we didn't put a picture of you up there. We could have, right? Macho maniac, right? And you can think, you can put in your own UFC fighter or your own a basketball player or athlete or whatever, right? These are the guys, right? These guys deny all their feelings. They ignore the law. They never worry. They never complain. They never apologize. They just break things, Yeah. They accomplish the impossible every eight minutes, and they do whatever they want, whenever they want, however they want. Uh, they're all full of testosterone. And this is an idea, this is one idea of manhood today. There's another one, right? You guys may be too young to know who this is. Does anyone know who this is? Just, just say it if you know. Archie Bunker, how old are you? Who said that? 38, praise the Lord. I'm 10 years older than you, man. But uh, yeah, these are the Archie Bunkers of the, these are like the curmudgeons of the world, right? Been there, done that, so cynical, tired, stodgy old men who try to build up their self-esteem by belittling everybody else, particularly his own wife, his family members. He imagines that the rules, his, his fam, uh, are, the rules only apply to his family right? Uh, but actually behind his back, the family and friends and neighbors, they all actually ridicule him. And he's frightened by the world, so he keeps it at an arm's distance by talking tough and being critical and being cynical. He's what the author describes as the great pretender. So there's a form of manhood that, that is like this great pretender, Right? Uh, there's a third type, and that's the world-class wimp, right? 
These are the Phil Dunphys of the world, right? Modern Family, yeah? Uh, Homer Simpson, right, if you're a little bit older, right? Uh, fill in the blank with any other kind of doting, dopey dad, right? These, the, the, the caricature here is that, that men are so inept that they are constantly outwitted by their own children, wives, and even their dogs, right? Nobody takes these people seriously. Their motto is, blessed are the passive, for they avoid conflict at all costs, right? So we got that. And last but not least, this is as probably as, as, as triggering and as charged as we'll get if we can get over this hump, okay, if we can step over, if we can acknowledge this, tip our hat to this, and move on, that would be great. But here is the fourth false image and what he calls in his book gender blenders, okay? Uh, you can fill, in my day, this was like uh, Boy George or Michael Jackson, Today, you might consider maybe BTS, right? Uh, uh, this is Caitlyn Jenner for sure. Uh, in one decade, like literally Bruce Jenner on the cover of Wheaties, right? The, the box, right? Breakfast of champions. He absolutely typified what it meant to be a man. And then years later, it's Caitlyn Jenner. Yeah? And so in this, in this gender blender section, he's talking about androgynous, asexual. Uh, these, uh, you know, I, I have even heard the statement like this, right, uh, from a wide assortment of people. But basically, this same version uh, is repeated all throughout. And, and we actually heard a little bit of it from Pastor Gene's uh, uh, comment there. Uh, the statement goes like this. We live in a society today where men no longer even pretend to be masculine or can be proud of being masculine. That's literally what your internet guy said to you, right? There's a complete reversal of roles and identity. So, with those four false images in mind, of these four lies in mind, what is the alternative to all of this? What is God's model for manhood? What, what is God's idea about being a male? Right? Because here's the idea, right? God's model for manhood, being a male is a matter of your birth, but being a man is a matter of choice. One more time, I'm going to repeat that. Being male is a matter of your birth, but being a man, hence, act like men. There's a volitional aspect to that. There's an aspect of choice to that. Being male, you have no choice. You, that, that, that's, that's what you were assigned, as it were. But being a man is a matter of choice. So how do we stand firm as men? How do we act like men? Did you know that even non-Christians are asking this question? What do we do with passages like 1 Corinthians 16, 13? Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. What does that even mean today? Michael Ian Black uh, wrote a well-circulated article. Again, this was a few years ago in 2018. Uh, the article has appeared in the Wall Street Journal, New York Times, Washington Post. Uh, it's called, The Boys Are Not All Right. I want to read you a little bit of this article. He writes this. He says, I used to have this one-liner. If you want to emasculate a guy friend, 
when you're at a restaurant, ask him everything that he's going to order. And then when the waitress comes, order for him. It's funny because it shouldn't be that easy to rob a man of his masculinity, but it is. And at this time, again, it's written in 2018, but just keep this in mind, especially as, you know, we hear of mass shootings all the time. And there was a church in your own denomination, PCA denomination, who recently went through a tragedy. He writes back in 2018, this is what he wrote, this is what was happening in his day. He says, last week, this is in 2018, 17 people, most of them teenagers, were shot dead at a Florida school. Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School now joins the ranks of Sandy Hook, Virginia Tech, Columbine, and too many other sites of American carnage. What do these shootings have in common? Guns, yes but also boys. Girls aren't pulling triggers, it's boys. It's almost always boys. America's boys are broken and it's killing us. Again, he wrote this in 2018, another prophet, another prophet. He continues, the brokenness of the country's boys stands in contrast to its girls who still face an abundance of obstacles but go into the world increasingly well-equipped to take them on. The past 50 years have redefined what it means to be female in America. Girls today are told that they can do anything, be anyone. And you know what? I confess, that's true. I am a girl dad. I have three girls, teenage girls. Pray for me. But I tell them, I say, girls, you can be whatever you want to be. However God's designed you, whatever passions he's put inside of you, however he's gifted you, however he's called you, you can be that person. And so this article is right. He continues, they've absorbed the message. He's talking about girls. They're outperforming boys in schools at every level. But it isn't just about performance. To be a girl today is to be the beneficiary of decades of conversation about the complexities of womanhood, its many forms and expressions. Decades of conversation, decades of gatherings, decades of thinking this through, good, bad, and ugly. Boys, though, he continues, boys, though, have been left behind. No commensurate movement has emerged to help them navigate toward a full expression of their gender. It's no longer enough to be a man. We are no longer even know what that means. To many boy, Too many boys are trapped in the same suffocating, outdated model of masculinity where manhood is measured in strength. Be strong. Yeah? Where there is no way to be vulnerable without being emasculated, where manliness is about having power over others. They are trapped, and they don't even have the language to talk about how they feel about being trapped, because the language that exists to discuss the full range of human emotion is still viewed as sensitive and feminine. This is a non-Christian author. This is a non-Christian author. That's dissecting and interpreting accurately the culture around them so much better than many of us Christians. He continues, men feel isolated, confused, and conflicted about their natures. Many feel that the very qualities that used to define them, their strength, aggression, and competitiveness, are no longer wanted or needed. This is in 2018, guys. Many others never felt strong or aggressive or competitive to begin with. We don't even know how to be, and we're terrified. 
But to even admit our terror is to be reduced because we don't have a model of masculinity. They're looking for a model. We don't have a model of masculinity that allows for fear or grief or tenderness or the day-to-day sadness that sometimes overtakes all of us. Case in point, a few days ago, I posted a brief thread about these thoughts on Twitter, knowing I would receive hateful replies in response. I got dozens of messages impugning my manhood. The mildest of them called me a soy boy, a common insult among the alt-right that links soy intake to estrogen. And so the man who feels lost but wishes to preserve his fully masculine self has only two choices— Withdrawal or rage? Because we're not engaged in this conversation, because we're not thinking about it deeply, because we don't create environments like this, how many of you have been to a men's retreat? Like no one raises their hand except for the former men's pastor and like Andy. (laughs) It's because we don't have environments for this. We don't talk about it. Women do. Women do. Women gather. Women like to talk. They like to process good, bad, and ugly. Men, we don't talk. We don't have gatherings like this. And so the man who feels lost but wishes to preserve his fully masculine self has only two options, two choices, withdrawal or rage. We've seen what withdrawal and rage have the potential to do. School shootings are only the most public of tragedies. Others on a smaller scale take place across the country daily. Another commonality among shooters is a history of abuse toward women. This can be physical abuse, can be sexual abuse, all sorts of abuse. He finishes up here, he says, to be clear, most men will never turn violent. Most men will turn out fine. Most men will learn to navigate the deep waters of their feelings without ever engaging in any form of destruction. Most men will grow up to be kind, but many will not. We'll probably never understand why any one young man decides to end the lives of others, but we can see at least one pattern, and that pattern is glaringly obvious. It is boys. I believe in boys. I believe in my son. Sometimes, though, I see him, 16 years old, swallowing his frustration, burying his worry, stomping up the stairs without telling us what's wrong, and I want to show him what it looks like to be vulnerable and open, but I can't because I was a boy once too. There has to be a way to expand what it means to be a man without losing our masculinity. I don't know how we open ourselves to the rich complexity of our manhood. I think we would benefit from the same conversations and environments girls and women have been having for these past 50 years. It's no coincidence, I don't think, that the women had a retreat, and as you said, we're just following right in line. I would like men, he says, last paragraph, I would like men to use feminism as an inspiration in the same way that feminists use the civil rights movements as theirs. I'm not advocating a quick fix. There isn't one, but we have to start the conversation. We have to create the environments. Boys are broken, and I want to help. And so do I. And so do your pastors. And that's why we're here. 
having the conversation. Like before I kind of wax platitudes about biblical manhood, let's start asking better questions. Let's wrestle with it a little bit. Let's engage the conversation and dialogue. Let's embrace the environment. What does scripture mean when it first says be watchful? It means to be vigilant. It means to engage, to have the conversation, be open to this environment. How do we stand firm? It's in opportunities like this. Speaking about standing firm, if you're a note taker, uh, my encouragement to you would be to stand firm in God's identity, in, in your identity in Christ. Stand firm in his identity for you. Luke chapter 3, there's this fascinating passage in Luke chapter 3 where it's the only time, right, in the New Testament where the triune God is at the same scene at the same time. You have Jesus getting baptized. You have God the Father speaking. You have the Holy Spirit descending as if a dove. So it's the only time in the New Testament where all three are together at the same scene. And in that scene, what, is, what does God the Father say? You are my son, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. You are my son, identifying Jesus Christ as the son, himself as the father. Whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. Now, let me ask you, what had Jesus done up until that point? Had he healed anyone? Had he done any major preaching or teaching? Performed any miracles? Had he gone to the cross yet? No. He was just God's son. What do you have to do, Gene, to love your three sons? The fourth one on the way. Do they have to do anything? No, you just, you love them. You're the father. They're your sons. They're your boys. You're my son. I love you. I'm so pleased with you. If you don't jot anything down, jot this down, guys. What we see in this passage is that it sets up the the model, so to speak. You want a, a model of masculinity? It sets up this model where Jesus, from this point on, he lives from and not for love. Does that make sense? He lives from a place of love, not chasing for love, to do the right thing to be the right kind of Savior, to be the right kind of Lord. No, he knows he is already loved by God the Father. He knows who he is, his identity as the Son. And he lives from a place of love, not for love. He lives from a place of surplus, not for surplus. He lives from a place of wealth and true riches, 
not for wealth and true riches. So who are you and what are you doing? How are you living? Are you living from a place of wealth? Are you living for it? Are you living from a place of acceptance? Or, or are you living for acceptance? You know, Gene mentioned Pastor Rick. I don't know why he said that. That clearly wasn't true when he said that. How did you even know that he said that? Oh, okay. Because <laughs> Rich, our mutual friend, saw it on the video when, when he introduced me. And, um, you know, Pastor Rick, I mean, he, he's 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 funny guy, great guy, and, you know, he, he, he speaks in hyperbole and superlatives and whatnot. Um, but... There, there are many things that he has said, and when I was on staff there, and both in large group meetings and obviously congregational settings, as well as smaller meetings, uh, even one-on-ones, but I want to share with you guys in closing the one thing that he said that just really burns in my heart. Of all the things, I mean, he's a brilliant guy and well-known, all this stuff, but, but he once led a staff meeting where he shared basically the first purpose of your life. What is the first, right? So he wrote Purpose Driven Church, Purpose Driven Life, all this stuff, right? What is the number one purpose of your life? If I were to ask you that, what's your number one purpose? Right? What, what, what is your chief end? What is the number one most important thing for you as a living human being? Go ahead, shout out. What do you think it is? Just go ahead, just whatever. Number one, what is the chief end of man? To glorify God. Yeah, okay, so that, that's like a, that sounds like a good good. Good answer, right? To my chief purpose, my number one purpose is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. What else? I saw a hand back there. What's, what, what is the number one purpose of your life? What, <laughs> okay. Good reform guy. Awesome. Great. Okay. Uh, yeah, go ahead. Change the world for the better. Awesome, right? One more. One more. What, purpose, number one purpose of your life. To love your wife. Okay, all right, great. So number one purpose of your life is to glorify God, to enjoy God, to, to make the world a better place, to love my wife, to love others. That's my number one purpose, right? If you grew up in the church, maybe it's, you know, my number one purpose is to worship God. My number one purpose is to serve God. My number one purpose is to, is to love God. To love others, right? Golden rule, right? This blew me away. Rick Warren told our staff of 500 people, sat us down, and he said, your number one first priority of life is not to love God. It's not to enjoy God, serve God, love others. Your number one first purpose of life is to be Loved by God. 
In other words, what he was saying is, your number one purpose in life is actually to be embraced by God's love, to accept God's love, to be enraptured by God's love, to be enveloped by God's love. Scripture says you, know, you only love because he first loved you. So your first purpose is actually to, to envelop, to enjoy that love of God first. Your first purpose of life is to be loved by God. And from that place, from that place, you can then love God. From that place, then you, then you want to serve that God, and you want to worship that God, and you want to love others better, and you want to change the world and make it a better place, and you, and you want to glorify God. But first, got to love him. you got to accept his love for you, right? And so my first calling is to enjoy a relationship with God. Preaching is a part of that. Serving others is a part of that. Loving God is a part of that, but my first calling is to enjoy a relationship with God. Uh, Jude chapter 1 verse 1 says this, This letter is from Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. I am writing to all who are called to live in the love of God the Father and in the care of Jesus Christ. We are called to live in the love of God the Father. The relationship God made for me, is as a son. Does that make sense? The relationship God made for me is to be a son. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 through 5, it says that we've been adopted into his own family. He's done that by bringing us, uh, us uh, through Jesus Christ, right? And this gave him great pleasure, it says, right? The number one thing I need to understand and remember is actually how much God loves me. And here's the deal. Here's the deal. When you remember that God loves me, what happens to your life? What happens when your life is motivated by knowing how much God loves you? I'm going to give you six things. Okay, you can jot these down. What happens when your life is motivated by knowing how much God loves you? Number one, you stop feeling pressure to perform. When you know that you're loved, when you know that you're loved, you stop feeling the pressure to prove yourself, to perform, right? Romans 5.1 says, by faith, we have been made acceptable to God. Why have we been made acceptable to God? Because God loves us. He sent his son to die for us. His righteousness has been imputed to us through Christ. It's been given to us. It's been, it's been put into our credit. So we're loved. We're so loved. We're so adored. And when you're so adored and you know you're adored, when you're so loved and you know you're loved, it takes away the pressure to perform or to prove yourself. Number two, what happens when your life is motivated by knowing how much God loves you? Number two, you feel accepted rather than ashamed. You feel accepted rather than ashamed. You don't have to raise your hand. You don't have to, you know, wink at me or anything. How many of you lived in a shame-based household? 
in a guilt-based household, when you know that you know that you know that you're loved, you feel accepted rather than ashamed. Romans 8.33 says, if God says his chosen ones are acceptable to him, can anyone bring charges against them? Or can anyone condemn them? No, indeed. No, indeed. Number three, what happens when your life is motivated by knowing how much God loves you? Number three, you become bold in bringing your needs to God. That is so true, especially if you're a girl dad. <laughs> if you're a girl, my girls, they know that I love, and they, they, they're bold. <laughs> they come to me, and they ask me for bold things, and I love it. I love it. You ain't going to get it. The answer is no, but I love, I love that you know I love you so much, you can be audacious. You can be bold. You can ask. You can come to me, not look for it somewhere else. When you know that you are loved, what happens to your life when you, is, is you, you, you become more bold in bringing your needs to God. Number four, what happens when your life is motivated by knowing how much God loves you? Number four, you have unexplainable peace and confidence. That is so true. If you know that God loves you, if you can just embrace that truth and live in that space, you have an unexplainable peace and confidence in every and all situations. It's incredible. You know the verses, Philippians 4, 7, Romans 8, 28. Number five, what happens when your life is motivated by knowing how much God loves you? Number five, you gain the courage to take bigger risks. Some of you are living too small. You're not risking anything. That's a small life. God doesn't want you to live a small life. He's a big God. When you know that you're loved, what happens when your life is motivated by knowing how much God loves you, you start taking bigger risks. Pastor Gene, Pastor Aaron and I, we were out for dinner just before, a couple hours ago, and we were just talking about... Uh, I don't know. Raise your hand if you were at the November 2014 very first launch service of this church, Exilic. I was there. Raise your hand if you were there. One, two. Okay. All right. Patrick, you were there back there. All right. All right. Andy was that there. Pastor. Gene, where were you, bro? Okay. So we got like five people that were there. Okay. Did you guys know? Did you guys know? Guess how many messages, sermons, series Pastor Aaron had in his back pocket as he's planting this church? I just learned this today. I didn't know. I found out two hours ago. Guess how many? Because, like, if it were me and I'm planting a church, bro, I want at least two, three years worth of material. As a matter of fact, when I left Saddleback Church, 
and and went and 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 uh, long story short, like there was this church called Young Nak, it's a, a large Korean church, and we basically transformed it to uh, a church that we call today New Story Church. And when I went there, I went with Pastor Rick's blessing, with the staff's blessing, all this stuff. And the number two guy at Saddleback Church, who was like the executive pastor for forty years, uh, you know, built uh, built the church up with Pastor Rick, um, is actually Pastor Rick's uh, brother-in-law. So 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 Tom Holiday married Rick's older sister, okay, so like this guy is like, you know, whatever, when, when my, my last, he, he's one of my mentors, and, and my last Sunday there, he literally gave me access to all of Rick's messages for the past 40 plus years, because he's like, hey, listen, you're going into a new environment, and you, 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 it's like planting a church, and Tom, you're about to plant a church. You're about to replant this thing. There's so many things that you have to worry about. From like bylaws to HR issues to 501c3s to like all this stuff. Like you're not going to have the time to adequately prepare messages the way that you want. So here, with Rick's blessing, here's an access to all, every single one of his messages for, at that time, the last 40 plus years. Okay? How many sermons did your pastor have? Eight. Not eight years! Eight, not even eight good ones. <laughs> that okay, Aaron? By your own admission, they were like eight quasi youth group messages. <laughs> That's a man who knows he is loved by God. Amen. That's a man who knows he is loved by God. That is the only explanation for taking such a crazy risk. He wasn't single at the time. Bro, he was married. Some of his best friends I just learned said, no, 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 don't do that, Aaron. Don't do that. Take this other, take this other gig. Take this other position. It's more secure. When you know that you know that you know you are loved by God, you start taking bigger risk. You gain the courage to take bigger risk and make bigger asks. That's what you do. You can't manipulate that. You can't manipulate it. Are you facing something big right now? You want something big right now? Do you really think that you, you, you're going to somehow over? No, no, no. No. Rest and be secure and embellish and embrace God's love for you. And that will quicken your heart and give you the courage to take bigger risks. Last point. What happens when your life is motivated by knowing how much God loves you. Number six, you find yourself worshiping more and worrying less. 
when you know that God loves you, when you know God looks at you and calls you his son, then you've been adopted into the family because of Jesus Christ. And, and, and there's now nothing standing in between you and a holy God because of Jesus. You find yourself just being lost in that truth and that love, and you find yourself truly worshiping him more and worrying less. So it's not about trying to worship first. It's more about knowing that you're loved first by this God and embracing that, being loved by God. And that brings you into a place and a heart of worship quicker than anything else can. I'll end with this last idea. Um, you know, COVID did a number on me. I think I gained like 20 pounds <laughs> during COVID. It's uh, something else. But, uh, and I know you're looking at me. I see some of you guys. Some of you all are jacked. I see, where's that one jacked dude? Yeah, right there. I'm looking at you. <laughs> What's your name, man? Sam? Like Samson? <laughs> some of you guys are jacked. Some of you guys look like runners. Believe it or not, I know I, you're looking at me. I'm like, you know, 48 years old, kind of like, you know, need to drop some weight and all that stuff. Believe it or not, I ran the 2018 New York City Marathon. I'm not built for speed or distance, uh, but that was actually my third marathon. I, I went through a stretch of like, 11 months between 2017 and 2018 where I ran three marathons, the LA Marathon, New York Marathon, and uh, San Francisco Marathon. Do you know what the secret about marathons is? Here's the deal. Most people don't know this, but um, marathon, 26.2 miles. Right Now everyone's looking at my belly and you know, just relax. 26.2 uh, miles, right? Um, here's the thing about marathons. Did you know that less than 1% of the world runs a marathon, right? Less than 1% of the world. Right? People don't even want to, they think marathon, I'm not a runner, I, don't, I hate running, I, I, I could never run, I could never do 26 miles, I, can, I can't even do like a 5K, right? And so, so most, of the, most of the world doesn't even, 99% of the world doesn't, right? One, one, less than 1% of the world actually runs a marathon. But guess how many people who show up on race day finish a marathon greater than 99%. Greater than 99% of most people who show up with a registration number and, and their sneakers and are ready to run the marathon on race day actually finish. It's a very, very minuscule number of people who actually show up on race day and don't finish. Right? And that to me is such a lesson on life. Right? Sometimes the hardest thing to do is just show up. It's just show up. That's like more than half the battle. Just getting started is half the battle. Right? You guys all showed up. You're here. For whatever crazy reason, you decide to spend the next 48 hours with a bunch of other dudes on your day off. 
away from people that love you and that you love to engage this conversation about what is manhood? What is being a son? What is being a father? What is being a godly man? And I believe, and my prayer is, that he will continue the work, the good work that he has begun in you. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I'm looking at these guys, and I just love them, Lord. I just love them. I love that you've called each one here. I love that you've sovereignly, lovingly, patiently, wonderfully arranged each of their paths to be here right now. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit, by the power of your Holy Spirit, by the power of your word, that your word actually would not go back to you, return to you void. I pray that there are one or two things, even from this little message here, that kind of pricks each man's heart. What is that one thing? that I needed to hear? What is that one thing I, I, need to, I need to rest on a little bit more? Lord, I pray that you would show each man here how they are loved and how they need to sit and embrace in your love before taking another step, before trying to manipulate, trying to, before they try to uh, use their own talents and their own experience and their own whatever to try and force the hands, to, to, to try and uh, create something, um, Lord, I pray, Father, that you would actually help each one uh, to rest in your love, to know of your love, to, to live from a place of love and acceptance through Jesus Christ and not for those things, Lord. So I pray, Father, for your anointing upon this time, for the rest of our time together. In Jesus' name, all God's men said, amen.